And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Kootenai Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf with very special guests, Alexi Harrow, Ian Mond, and James Bradley on the Kootenai Podcast! And welcome everybody to our almost end of the year sort of roundup, and uh, um, I guess um, we haven't done this quite this way before, have we, Jonathan? No, not quite this way. Where we can actually see people like they're actual people. They and, can't and see stuff. them. Our listeners can't see people. That's cruel. No. That's, yes, we don't want to see the office. But we should take a moment, first of all, to introduce everybody say hello. So first of all, we're joined by Alexi Harrow, wonderful writer of 10,000 Doors of January and the Once and Future Witches and two novellas that we worked on. Hello, Alex. Hello, and thank you so much for inviting me. To- it is a pleasure. You're joining us live from somewhere on the east coast of the United States. Yeah, Charlottesville, Virginia. Covered in snow? No, no, it was like 60s today. Ah, uh, and then we have... Ian Mond, Locust Critic, joining us from from Melbourne, Australia. Hello, Ian. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Gary. Hello, Alex. Hello, James. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought, I thought I'd do it now. Just get, get everyone in. Get it. Get, get. <laughs> and joining us from Sydney, Australia, we have award-winning writer and critic, author of Clade and many other wonderful novels, James Bradley. Hello, everybody. That was really natural and easy to do. <laughs> <laughs> and we're here to talk about 2021 a year in reading. And I thought what we might do is start off by kind of going just quickly, how was, how was your year in reading? How did, how how did it go? Was it like a typical year, a good year, a crazy year, Alex? I found 2020 was pretty much exclusively rereading books and romance novels because I could only handle absolute certainty. (laughs) <laughs> in a very uncertain times. Um, but I found this year it improved so that I had a ratio of like one or two heavy, interesting new books and then like just five or six romance novels in between. <laughs> so it was a punctuated equilibrium model and I, it worked. <laughs> How about you, Ian? You've been in the most lockdown city in the world. How has your 2021 reading been? It was shit, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it was. It was great. No, uh, my reading fell off a cliff um, and never recovered. Hasn't recovered since 2020. So, you know, I, I, I read, my aim was to read, I always aim to read about 100 books. I didn't get close this year. I know for some people that sounds like a lot of 100 books, uh, but I think for any of the audience here uh, for this podcast, it's probably about average, um, that sort of reading. And I just, yeah, there were, there, there were I went weeks not i mean if it were not for, for the column that i have to write for locus there would have been months where i might not have actually read anything i just could <laughs> mentally fragile uh, when you're in lockdown for three nearly 300 days over two yeah. years it it, uh, it has an effect so i'm yeah, sure it does. but what i did read was really good so it will this will be very positive i will not just whine and moan <laughs> for the next 55 minutes Absolutely. i can do that but Honestly. i won't <laughs> okay and how about you, James? How, how has 2021 been as a reading year for you compared to others? I'd, I'd probably echo Ian. What's that line about like it was a shit sandwich at the All You Can Eat buffet? Um, uh, <laughs> um, no, it was – look, it was funny. When you asked me to do this, I, I almost said no for two reasons. And one was I thought I've read nothing this year that I really liked. Like I thought I'd had a really average year of reading. And I also thought I hadn't read anything speculative. And then – I kind of went away and looked at my my list of things I'd read and went, oh, actually, I've read a lot of speculative stuff. And when I started going through a list, I went, oh, there's lots of books here I really liked as well. So my perception of it having been a very disappointing year when I actually went back and looked at the things that I'd read um, was not not kind of correct. And I suspect it's probably for the same kind of reason Ian's talking about. We were in lockdown up here for months and months and months. You know, we were homeschooling and it's just been a very, very long, a very long year. So mm. you're kind of doing things a very broken up kind of way, which doesn't doesn't tend to make you feel positively towards what you're doing. But no, no, but looking back on it, there were so many things that I'd liked. It was actually, it was, I was quite disconcerted by how inaccurate my perception was. <laughs> tells, you a lot, tells you a lot about the pandemic, I think. And what about you, Gary? You reached the end of your 30th year of review, reviewing for Locus, I think. I, I so yeah. That means you've about 42 trillion books or something. It seems in retrospect, completely unnecessary. Um, Probably was a bad idea to start in 1991 because it just becomes a habit. But my reaction to this year, if I, I go back to the end of 2020 and think of the list of books, we did a podcast, but books you're looking forward to seeing in 2021. And a lot of the books I thought I was going to love, I did not. I did not finish them. I'm not going to mention those titles. And some of the books I really liked were ones I did not see coming at all. 
Um, and I was so I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, the pleasant surprises out outweighed the tragic disappointment. <laughs> What's well, tragic? That's a good tragic thing. Tragic disappointment. I love that. <laughs> And I guess for me, I can really say that with, apart from a few real highlights, my reading fell off a terrible cliff, just like the other three, the th- three of the four of you. And that genuinely, you know, I had this odd experience where my favorite book of the year I read in 2020, which arguably shouldn't count, but it will count. And the, my other favorite book of the year isn't coming out till next year, so it shouldn't count. But still, I still found stuff that I was, when I actually could force myself to sit down to read, I found myself loving reading. So that's not a bad thing. I also found myself loving books for reasons other than people maybe said they were loving them in their reviews and whatever. Anyway, so that was the interview. We're going to start off to maybe talk about the books we did love in the year. I'm going to kick off with you, Alex. What what was the first book you wanted to talk about? In no because I don't like favorites. (laughs) Ah. She stresses. (laughs) One of the ones that I loved very much is one I actually read uh, kind of earlier in draft um, is Summer Suns by Lee Mandela, tour.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and the comps for this one, I find it hard to pitch to people because the comps are the Fast and the Furious, but also the Secret History, but make it Southern Gothic. And so those things <laughs> okay. don't, like, hold those in your head like a Venn diagram. And somewhere <laughs> in the middle, there's this, like, contemporary Southern Gothic story about, like, a young man who's haunted by his ex and trying to figure out um, why he died. And it's like a mystery. It's got some like ghosty stuff. Um, it's got some romance. And I just found it so wonderful. Um, it was one that I was sort of like reading a book by a friend and there's a certain level of like, oh no, am I going to like this? But then it was great and was one of my favorite books of the year and I've been <laughs> passing it out to everyone. So there's a little bit of relief in there too. But I just found it like I love um, Southern Gothic in general, but this one, Lee is a Kentuckian. And so it's a mm-hmm. very, very specific Upper South brand Southern Gothic, mm-hmm. and it felt very, very familiar culturally. And it's a first novel, isn't it? Yes, debut. What about you, Ian? What's the first book you'd talk about? So mine is also in no particular order and uh, also a debut. Um, so it's Violet Cooper Smith's Build Your House Around My Body. Um, this, this was a cracker. And I only read it, Jonathan, because you sent it to me. Otherwise, <laughs> I would not have read it. So um, it's it's set in Vietnam, but it's this book that – so she she's quite inspired by David Mitchell, and you can tell in the way the book is structured, in that it's it, it, it ricochets through time. It's a, a radial sort of novel in that it's not sequential. Um, and it's about a, a young woman who – uh, is biracial, comes to Vietnam. Her father is a Vietnamese, uh, she, uh, her mother's American, comes to Vietnam in a sense to find herself, though it's a lot, it's a little bit more opaque than that. Um, she uh, works as a, an English teacher, though she is terrible at it. And um, we know from the very first page, because it's in the chapter titles, that she's going to disappear, that she's going to vanish. But the genius of this novel, and the main character's name is Winnie, the genius of this novel is that she is a bit character in the story. It's actually a story of a love triangle that goes back a century and there's uh, ghosts and and people possessed by smoke and all this amazing mythological folktale stuff, um, which I assume is, is, is cultural appropriate. Um, I didn't delve into that, but um, yeah, it's just amazing how it all works together. And she's she's a key figure, Winnie. That let's get, get, get her wrong, but you find out as the book progresses that she's actually a side element to a much larger and broader story. And it's just mm-hmm. beautifully put together. And as a debut, to do that, to do to finally tune the book like that is just extraordinary. But I, mean, I can only imagine how many cards and bits and pieces Cooper Smith would have had around just to make mm-hmm. sure it all joins together because it is it is a jigsaw puzzle and a terrific one so yeah really loved it and thank you jonathan because if not for you i would not have read it so uh good work good work jonathan <laughs> uh, well, there you go. how about you you james what would you kick off with um look i'd kick off with a book i really really loved which is actually an australian novel which i don't think is available outside of australia um which is jennifer mills's book the airways which um, jennifer's been uh, doing this is her third or fourth novel, I should which it is, but it, it's this kind of very strange and very beautiful novel, which is set between kind of Sydney and China, Sydney and Beijing. Um, and it's 
it's a kind of ghost story, but it's about a ghost, a kind of vengeful ghost, which is jumping from body to body. And there's this kind of, it's this kind of book, which is about bodies, you know, about the kind of connections between them. There's all this kind of fascinating stuff, which kind of bounces off in it. Um, it's about, about male violence. Like it's just, but it's this kind of, it's just a really remarkable kind of book. And I mean, I've admired a number of Mills's books a lot, but I thought this was one of those ones that you just start reading it. And there's that sense of kind of, incredible excitement in front of you and one thing that one thing that I actually really enjoyed about it was there's a whole lot of stuff about being an expat in China and I mean I lived in Shanghai 15 or 20 years ago for a while and like it's so kind of pitch perfect all of that stuff about that weird displaced look you live when, when you're in China and you don't really speak the language and, and the kind of weird world of kind of expats there but it's just it's the Sydney stuff is fantastic like it's, I just I think it's a terrific novel it really, I just bought it James oh no. I'll be I'll be really interested to hear what you think of it so you could do that while people are talking. You can actually buy stuff as they're speaking. It's the miracles of the internet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, look, I, think, I think it's a great novel. And she's written a number of really fascinating novels. She's one of those writers. I think one of the things that was really interesting to me about this year, the kind of reading in general, is that what you can see is that that border that used to exist between kind of speculative stuff and literary stuff is just gone. Like, you know, I mean... You know, and it's been happening for a while. It's been happening for about a decade. But, I mean, there is now just, you know, that that literary market is now just filled with books that are speculative in in their kind of, you know, in really fundamental ways. And she's one of those writers who's been working into that space for a while. But it just feels really, really natural. I read a review recently which argued something. I'm not sure I agree with it, but it was a really interesting perspective. And what they were saying was when you look at the kind of literary world, there's basically two dominant modes. And one is a version of science fiction where it's about world building and dystopias and ghost stories and kind of all of the stuff that's drifted in from the mm-hmm. speculative world. The other end is autofiction. And everything that used to be in the middle is gone. I don't know that I think it's right, you know, but it's a kind of, I was on this, you know, you read something, you just find yourself going, do I think that? I don't know, but it's an interesting idea. <laughs> but yeah, but I mean, there's a kind of level at which that kind of sense of what was the social realist novel is kind of gone. You know, like well, you, yeah. you've got could, these two James, you, other you, you, modes going on. James, you could, you've started me off here. Don't I know it's not the point of this podcast, but you know, the whole Rachel Cusk, Cusk Jenny Offal universe of literary fiction. That's that's that. I think that's what they're referring to. Mm. That that the Sally Rooney yeah. world. Yeah, 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 that's too correct. Yeah, although Sally Rooney, you would say, actually is more the social realist of of the 30, 40 years ago, whereas Cusk and Offal are doing that autofiction, new version of autofiction. So, but but yeah, I find that's a really interesting argument. We should do a whole podcast on that. Uh, <laughs> well, we, at some we, point. If, if, we don't st- if we don't stop this, we're going to be doing it right now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 do th- I do think the mainstream has shifted toward the fantastic in, 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 in a mm. sense that uh, 20 years ago, if uh, Jonathan Lethem or, 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 or Michael Chabon or Margaret Atwood would write a science fiction story. It was news. It was the first thing everybody said in the reviews. Now, when this happens with, let's say, Emily St. John Mandel, nobody really expects, or Colson Whitehead or Marlon James, nobody really expects uh, anything else. Um, it's, it's, it's not as though it's, it's, it's newsworthy that uh, mainstream, uh, honored, widely honored writers are, are using science fiction and fantasy and horror and gothic and various other trapping. Uh, True. So yeah, you still have Jonathan Franzen out there, but you guys don't have to deal with him because you're not in the States, except for Alex, who doesn't have to deal with yes. either. I <laughs> still don't have to deal with him. I find a totally Franzen-free life here. <laughs> I, I can talk to you about the Franzen at some length, if you like. I have views about it. But... <laughs> no, no, no. Gary, Gary, okay. your first book you want to talk about? The first book I want to talk about is one of the ones that I didn't see coming, but I should have, and it was uh, Karen Tidbeck's The Memory Theater which is a novel based on some characters she introduced in some short stories in her first collection several years ago, which was called Jagannath. Um, and it's, it's a, in some ways, a very hard-headed, almost brutal story about these almost fairy tale characters living in what Clute called a polder in an area in which time has uh, been frozen. And, and they escape that in, into our world in a way that uh, sort of turns it into a realistic novel for a couple of chapters. But it's, um, it's, it's completely, it's, it's, it's a kind of Nord, Nordic fairy tale fiction that you see out of Sweden and Norway. I think there's a tradition in the Scandinavian countries for a kind of fantasy which is as distinctive as Scandinavian noir is, but it's not as widely known. And I think Karen is... Uh, Tidbeck is, is, is one of the major practitioners of that 
very interesting writer consistently. So yeah. that's an example, Gary, just quickly, of a book that I have in my Kindle that mm-hmm. in any other year I would have read, but I just never got to because my brain yeah, uh, I couldn't understand Shut down. Could, could, you know, just couldn't, but you've just reinvigorated me. That's because Kindles are where books go to die. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Well, only in a way because like, that's where you get, they get lost forever in some magical alternate library thing that no one goes into. But well, I've, I've been having a real issue. I mean, because I don't buy things on Kindle because exactly that happens and I don't like reading on it anyway. But the it's issue the best I've thing had, ever. Oh, yeah, no, I just... But, but like this parent, I never, <laughs> see, I never see them again. Um, but, I mean, the problem for me is that all of the... So things like particularly Tor.com books are now so expensive to buy from Australia. You know, and they're like 45 or $48. And, you know, I do this thing where I think, I really want to read that, but it's just like... I just can't yeah. afford it, you know, and and so and then you up waiting for you know two years for it to come out payback. By which time the moment's passed. <laughs> yeah, I was I was gonna I was going to buy the new um, Fonda Lee book, Jade Legacy, and it was like seventy two dollars to yeah. get it here if you were going to get you know particular edition. So it's just it's a, it's in a crazy time. And well, the opposite so Lee Lee and that's book, what happened with Emery Theatre for me. Like mm-hmm. it was it's not tall, but it's also really expensive. And I just mm-hmm. I kind of look almost bought it about really? three times. No, it's like. 50 bucks. Lee's book, which I just bought on the Kindle just now, uh, (laughs) is $45 for a paperback. Locally. $15 $15 on a Kindle. So that's why I read on this. It makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Would you like to look at my Oasis? It's for sure. No, no, I've got my (laughs) Oasis here. This is weird. Don't do that. We're not going (laughs) to. No. Okay. So you mentioned a folder. requires a chaotic element. (laughs) (laughs) It was prepared at any time. (laughs) You mentioned a folder of a book and. One of my books of the year was a polder of a book. A couple of years ago, Lavi Tidhar, who always writes weird, strange, interesting things, or at least semi-weird things that come from unexpected ideas, uh, he did this book, what do you call it, by Force Alone, which was the first of his antimatter Britain quartet, Mm -hmm. where he's taking classic British folklore mythology and looking at it from a different angle. So by Force Alone, basically recasts uh, the tale of Arthur as a mob story, right? So they're all, I mean, it's, they're all thugs and whatever else and drug dealers and da, 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 da. And it kind of fits. And the book that was coming out, that came out this year is a book called The Hood. Mm-hmm. Now, The Hood is completely different from By Force Alone. By Force Alone has this nice, neat structure to it. The, the Hood is kind of, ah, it's one of those books where you're moving through it, never sure quite where you are, where, you know, it's part of a larger arc because particularly towards the end, characters that sit within the matter of Britain reappear. You're seeing Morgana and whoever else reappear, Merlin reappears. But the core of it is this idea of Sherwood Forest as an anchor spot, Mm -hmm. a holder for old mythology and old ideas that are being swept away in the world around them. And the core characters, I mean, the the opening starts where Morgana slays an elf knight and grows a tree out of his corpse that that becomes the tree at the heart of Sherwood Forest where the merry men thing. And all three you're looking for, the hood, who's in the hood with his hoods. They're all supposed to be rough and ready, and they are. And it's fascinating, and it's dark, and it's... I'm not entirely sure it's 100% uh, successful, but it's a kind of book where when you read it, you find yourself thinking about it for weeks and weeks after. And that to me is like a really special kind of a book to encounter. You know, too often, I mean, you read books, and you're going, well, too often, but every now and again, you read a book and not long after, you're not even sure you even read it. You're going like, did I read that? No, great book. Anyway, Alex. I, I had the same view of The Escapement, by the way, which is the second, the other book of his that came yeah, out. Yeah, but he's also insanely prolific, and he's got a big historical novel coming out this coming year as well. Uh, yeah. uh, Neom, I think. No, this is the space opera. forget the title of the phone. But anyway, mm-hmm. Alex, what comes next on your list? I feel like somebody else is going to close. It's very talked about. Um, but She Who Became the Sun by Shelley Parker Chan. Mm-hmm. Um, it's another debut. It is very much more on the historical fiction rather than the historical fantasy side of things. And it's sort of a alt retelling of the founding of the Ming Dynasty. Um, but influenced so heavily by like sea dramas mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, fan fiction and fantasy. And so it's like, in some ways very historically grounded in ways that I really appreciated, but in other ways full of just like all the angst and drama is just turned up to a thousand. So you have just these very messy characters. Everyone is either an antihero or a straight up villain um, involved in like the very messy, ugly process of empire building, you know, and it has a very 
clear-eyed view of what it would be to found a dynasty and to build an empire. Um, and I also appreciated it as someone who kind of grew up in the age of the uh, plucky girl disguises herself as a boy in order to pursue her destiny mm-hmm. as a knight or whatever. You know, it's kind of a really clever genderqueer reclamation of that trope, which really needed revising in a lot of ways. Um, so I appreciate it. On- and it's an Australian book. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. An Australian debut uh, and a lovely book. So, Ian, what comes next? So mine is my horror novel for the year. Hmm. Uh, and I think it's uh, – look, there isn't oh, – right, I'm going to be controversial here. I don't think there's much decent horror being written at the moment, at least that I, that I read. So this one really stands out. And it is in the vibe of a, of a Stephen Graham Jones in that it's plot and tone very different, but it has the same uh, visceral approach to – and passionate approach to race and identity. And it's um, The Thing Between Us by Gus Moreno. And it is um, – it's just wonderful. I mean, it's bloody bonkers and and quite scary in its own way, but also has this thread of humour running through it. I'm just going to quote a bit, and I've it's in my review, Jonathan. So you'll have read it, and anyone else who's read the review. But it just it just it makes me laugh every time I read it. Even though the genius of this bit I'm about to quote is that it's actually underlined by quite a bit of sadness and tragedy. But anyway, so essentially, um, one of the one of the bits is that the Amazon Alexa, this couple own, except it's not called an Alexa, it's called an Itza, is, uh, has just bought them a, a floppy pink dildo in the mail. It's done that. So, you know, there's this whole thing about um, the nests and Itza's, uh, Alexa's buying stuff for people that they didn't actually buy. So, anyway, that's what's happened here. And so the, the quote is, um, we both just stared at it, wiggling your Vera's hands, Tiago says, before it settled into a lazy lean over your wrist. It's an amusing, yeah, so uh, with the line, which my favourite line, the dildo was already feeling like that one drunk friend who wasn't getting the hint to just go home. I, I find that very funny. Anyway, um, <laughs> clearly no one else does. But, uh, yeah, look, it's, it, it, so it's got, it's got some very funny moments like that, but it's also a story about identity and how you identify, you know, um, racially, et cetera. And it's just, uh, and then, and then in the last third, it goes completely and utterly batshit crazy in all the great horror sort of ways. So as reality bends around the main character. So yeah, really, really, really good. Really enjoyable. So yeah, that's my, and probably yeah, that'll be the, my horror book. Excellent. Title again? Uh, did I mention it? Uh, it's uh, the, This Thing Between Us by Gus Moreno. Probably has the cover of the year as well. It is a beauty of a cover. Excellent. James, what about you? What comes next in your reading year? Um, well, interesting, the thing that comes next in my reading year is actually the thing between us, which is sitting beside my bed and I was going to start <laughs> tonight. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, look, I was going to, the, the book I really loved in the first half of the year was um, Elizabeth Knox's absolute book. And I'm not quite clear when it was published. Like I think it was out last year, but there were two different editions of it. And there's, there's the kind of publishing history of what seems a bit complicated and I don't really understand it. But it's this kind of, Look, I, I really admire a lot of Knox's books. They always have this kind of propulsive kind of narrative energy to them and and they're incredibly kind of imaginative in a kind of wild way that I really enjoy. But I loved The Absolute Book. I mean, it's this kind of fascinating book which is about a, a woman and her sister was killed in a hit and run when they were teenagers and she's been trying to, you know, there's all this stuff about trying to work out what happened to the sister. But essentially the book is simultaneously a kind of homage to that kind of tradition of portal fantasy and you know there's kind of all of these kind of it's kind of riffing on all of these other books but then is itself this kind of amazing portal fantasy which by the end turns into this kind of really fascinating kind of science fictional reinvention of of that model so i mean it kind of starts out as a kind of classic fantasy book and ends up as a kind of climate novel like it's it's, Hmm. i think it's a just it, it's an amazing book and there is this kind of just kind of furious energy to the writing and to the narrative. I mean, it's one of those books I really, really love, you know. I don't know if anyone else has read it. <laughs> I have that one and haven't read it, but I, Lainey Taylor was freaking out about how great it was and so I bought it and I haven't read it. What was the Which title again, James? The, the Absolute Book. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which edition did you read, James? Uh, I have read, I read the Penguin one with the greenish cover and the bird on it. Which I think is the revised edition because there were two versions, weren't there? That's there right. Was one it, it came out in 2019 in New Zealand. Yeah. And then uh, she revised the book for the 
British, the US publication that was early this year, I think. Yeah. Um, and it, and it, a terrific book. And it came out and there were kind of great reviews of it and then you couldn't get it. Or if you could get yeah. it, it was very expensive. And then it disappeared and then it came out again and I bought it when it came out. Well, it's published so, by a New Zealand university press that her husband run. And it's like, I think they're doing like these little sort of like 2,000 copy print runs sort of thing originally. Yeah. And then it got that write-up from Laura Miller in Salon or something. Yeah. And everybody went That's crazy right. for it, I think it was. So. Yeah, and I wasn't fast enough at that point. I mean, she's she's a really interesting writer. I mean, she's been writing for a lot of years now. And there are a lot of books and they bounce around all over the place and they are, they're always interesting. They're not always quite as satisfying as you think they're going to be. Like, I mean, they're often like, I really, I really like her work and I find it really interesting, but you know, they're often those books that feel to me like there's something kind of really wild going on in them often, but they don't necessarily resolve it quite perfectly. Whereas I felt this one really did, you know, and it's just such yeah. a clever book with so much going mm-hmm. on in it, you know, but she, I think she's a really fascinating writer, an interesting writer. And the books are always. Uh, uh, she has written a heap. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm just she's looking at it. Let's not Google off to one side. We're trying to get a conversation okay. progressing. <laughs> Gary, what comes next? One of the things I'm noticing when we're going through this list and I'm looking at my list and I always considered myself primarily a science fiction writer and primarily a science fiction viewer. There's almost no science fiction on my list this year. Uh, the next, the next uh, title I have is another uh, example. I said Karen Tidbeck's novel I thought was what we expected from her. Uh, and Mary Rickert's novel, The Shipbuilder of Belferry, is, it seems to me, the novel of arresting strangeness that anyone who has admired M. Rickert's short fiction has been waiting for. Uh, she'd written an earlier novel, which, while I thought it was successful, was a little bit too sweet and sunny for what you expect from an M. Rickert story. This is the M. Rickert story. And it's a homage to Frankenstein. It's a ghost story. It's a uh, sort of Lovecraftian uh, Arkham House. I, I think I said in the, I think I said in my review, it's like Flannery O'Connor's characters are wandering into Innsmouth and in Lovecrafty in New England because the characters are absolutely believable. It's hypnotic. It's stuck with me ever since. And um, it's only re- basically this strange hulking character named Quark, who has been making his living as um, a taxidermist, returns to his hometown because his father has gone missing. And then his father turns up dead, which is not a, much of a giveaway because then it becomes a murder mystery. He discovers his father has been building a gigantic ark in the backyard of his home. Um, and this is all tied in with the mythology of where the people in this village came from. So it's 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 a mash of a whole uh, panoply of, of, of different kinds of fantasies. And it's 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 very dark and yet weirdly affirming. You, Quark is, of, of, of the fiction I read this year, this guy Quark is the character that sticks with me the most. Fair enough. It sounds great. I will say, unlike you, three of my favorite books of the year are undeniably science fiction. You know, one of them I stumbled across mid-year. I probably should have read Becky Chambers at some point in my life and had not, Mm. mostly because, who knows, because there are books and books and books and books, right? And in the middle of 2021, any salve you could find, any sort of port in the storm was a welcome thing. Yeah. And I stumbled across uh, a book called A Psalm for the Wild Built, which is what they call a, it's a monk and robot book. It's set in an alternate version of our earth where robots have gone off and left pe- people behind for a, a large interregnum, like it's 100 or 200 years. Hmm. And the, 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 the first character you encounter in this very low tech kind of future is this, this man, Dex, who becomes a tea monk and travels around from town to town. Uh, basically providing counselling, you know, just, just services to people, talking to them, ma- making them the ideal perfect cup of tea. And it's all about this whole idea of bringing peace and tranquility to a very shared kind of community. And then he decides to go off in, into the wilderness and he encounters Moscap, who is one of the, one of the robots who went, went away. And the interesting thing about the robots here is they never get around to that sort of ominous kind of rebuilding themselves all the time kind of thing. They build themselves out of scrap and they, you know, whenever they come across it and they maintain this real sense of deep time. You know, these are still the same entities that were created when they wandered off into the wilderness to get away from humanity that was damaging them. And it's calming and centering and gentle and pleasing. And I, I read the second one just a, a little while ago, which is maybe not quite what? as great. You already in the session. <laughs> 
no, it's if, if you like the first one, and I can tell that you I you will did. like the it's second on one. List. And maybe maybe it's that thing where it is true. You can never get the same impact the second time when you go back to anything because it, it's a known quantity and you're looking for it again. But a real pleasure and a, a joy. So yeah. Yeah, I found it and, so so sweetly. And so, I mean, the first line, which I actually have written down because it was going to be one of my picks, is sometimes a person reaches a point in their life when it becomes absolutely essential to get the fuck out of the city. That is such a great <laughs> opening line and such a mood for this moment. Um, and I just found, I mean, like nothing happens. You know, it's yeah. a monk meets a robot and they talk. That's like the whole plot if we were outlining it. And I found it so like a bomb. It was lovely. <laughs> yeah. And, and to some degree, the challenge of the sequel, because uh, I think there's going to be a serious sequence of these, mm. is finding you, 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 know, you have to have plot. Because, I mean, we'll talk about it maybe another time because I don't want to like, ruin that book for anybody else since it doesn't come out till the middle of the year but it, it's literally what comes next so anyway speaking of what comes next alex what comes next well i will not do that one but i will talk about um that was my only sort of uh, for whatever reason even though i'm not a heavy reader uh, i ended up tending towards bleak uh for all of my picks uh so the next one is the wolf and the woodsman which is actually another debut i did not realize i had three debuts on here um by ava mm. reed and it is, um, like for anybody who read Spinning Silver, the Naomi Novik, mm -hmm. it's sort of like that, but way darker. Um, so it's a dark fairy tale-esque secondary world fantasy um, following a tortured prince character. He's the woodsman and then a like feral wolf girl and she's the wolf. And so it's in some ways follows like plot wise, a very classic um, I want to say even YA-ish fantasy model of like these special people have to go on a quest to save the kingdom or whatever. Hmm. Um, but it's has this really intelligent and dark undercurrent um, and a real sense that like the kingdom itself is an unsolvable problem. Like I, in my blurb for it, I compared it to seeing like a state hmm. <laughs> um, the just because it, it's really about the violence of forming states and the cultural exclusion that comes with forming a natural national identity. So, so like there's fairy tales, invented fairy tales worked throughout it. And each group of people tells them a different way. Oh. Right. And, and to, to um, different groups of people's advantage. Right. And so it has a happy ending, but there's this real pall of like all, you know, no matter if there's a good King on the throne or not, it comes at this terrible cost. And I thought it was really, really smart. And it kind of, a, in some ways, a subversion of everything that it seemed to be, like this quest fantasy kingdom kind of a book. Um, so it's really lingered with me. And it also has an extremely hot romance, and I loved that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not above it. I'm open about this. <laughs> uh, and Ian, for you. My book, my, my book I'm choosing doesn't have a hot romance. I'm sorry. Oh, uh, yeah, I know, I know. I'm but gonna leave a, now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there was a couple of books I read this year that obliquely referred to our friend uh, D. Trump. Only time I'm going to mention said person, 45, and they were um, Richard Powers' Bewilderment and uh, Ruth Zecki's latest, uh, The Book of Form and Emptiness. And I feel that they both have interesting ways of dealing uh, with the 45th president. I don't entirely, yeah, I wasn't entirely into it, but but, I, but interesting ways of dealing. But the one that I think does it the best um, and is just a cracker of a book is uh, The Confession of Copeland Kane by Keenan Norris. So it's a, it's a novel that uh, as I, yes, again, I'm going to quote my review, uh, say my review uh, poses the question, when is a dystopia not actually a dystopia? So, it's set in East Oakland um, in the not-too-distant future, though Norris makes a point of not telling us when. It's interesting because it's it's also a pandemic novel um, because it refers to our pandemic. pandemic. And one of, the, one of the key elements is that the pandemic has essentially been <laughs> dealt with, so, uh, but, you know, vaccines, etc. But there are still cases occurring in poorer communities. So that's something that it, that it picks up on. And um, it is about a, a, a black community in East Oakland essentially being gentrified out of existence. And this um, character, Copeland Kane, is on the run at the start of the story. He's, he's a fugitive uh, for a crime that we, we learn about as the, as the book progresses. And, and the, the main uh, SFNL element, apart from the fact that it is set slightly in the future, is that it's 
what if uh, Fox News, uh, Newsmax, OAN all became this uh, propaganda machine uh, for the Republican Party and was all-knowing, all-seeing, all-doing. And uh, it's horrifying in that sense. But um, it's also it also refers to uh, the, the, the George Floyd murder and police brutality and does so in ways that are, you know, confronting and disquieting and disturbing as you'd expect. And, and there's this, look, I'm not going to quote it out, but there is this extraordinarily brilliant passage uh, in the book that essentially says, you know, that the, the cycle of violence that the black community has has experienced since, you know, not not just uh, slavery, but since Tulsa and et cetera, and just how every time these things have occurred, there's been attempts to fix it, to remedy it, but it just happens again and again and again. And you, you can't help but, you know, feel, feel like you just want to weep at the end of it. So, yeah, it's pretty dark in that sense, but but a dark and real and and just extraordinary. So highly, obviously I'm recommending it because I'm mentioning it here. So that's, uh, yeah, so that, I'll, I'll repeat the title again. It's The Confession of Copeland Kane by Keenan Norris, which I believe is his second novel. Okay, so everybody writes that down, and hopefully we'll get put, put lists of these up on the website. I hope when the episode goes out, James, what would you uh, go to next? Uh, I'm going to. So what I'm what I'm actually hoping is that someone's going to like use some of mine, and then I'll be able to put some more in. But um, <laughs> no one has yet. Um, <laughs> the one the one I wanted to talk about next was Nina Allen's most recent book, Good Neighbor. Thank you, James. You know, Mention that. Thank is you. Is that one of yours? Good. I could tick that one off. Thank you. <laughs> Fantastic. I mean, I love I love Nina's work generally. The books are always absolutely fascinating. Um, and this one, this one is deeply weird. Like it's 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 a novel, and there is it, it's about a woman, and when she was a teenager, her best friend was, um, and she as an adult is now this kind of drifting photographer, and she goes back to the Irish. She she grew up in Scotland. She goes back to I think it's actually Butte, Nina Allen lives. Um, I'm now blank, but. She goes back to the island to kind of do what she calls murder photographs, where she takes photos of buildings where... And so it's got this kind of thread about her kind of walking into this kind of true crime story about, about you know, what happened to... The, how did she die? Cause the question of how she actually died is troubling. Like someone's been, you know, there's an unidentified murder. It doesn't quite add up. Um, there's this other thread, which is about the girl's father, who was this kind of weird kind of very strange guy but seemed to be in the fairies and then there's another thread again about and it's got this kind of you know you're constantly never quite sure how real lots of it is which makes it fascinating it's talking about grief it's talking trauma and the book that i've heard and i think is really remarkable the, the rift is doing as well but then it gets to this moment at the end i remember years ago hearing gary talk about what he called trapdoor speculative narratives mm-hmm. those ones where you step in like they, they seem normal and then you kind of step through a doorway and there's something there and there's something that happens in this book there is this moment of kind of pure utterly disconcerting deeply unweirdness kind of sitting near the end of the book and it's just you suddenly get to it and you go this is actually the kind of weird uncanny heart of this book and it's this kind of unprocessable strange mm-hmm. world twisting kind of thing and yeah, I mean, I look. I think her fiction is always really fascinating, but this one, the kind of control to get you to that moment, and then kind of is really quite remarkable. And there's a bit like, I mean, I think the rift kind of operates about there's, there's something fundamentally unexplainable at the heart of the rift, and this book has a similar kind of thing. There is this uncanny weirdness at the heart of it that everything around. I mean, I don't know if Ian. I, I, I know Ian liked it and reviewed it, but I mean, Ian probably has some similar. No, that's that basically sums it up. It's a book that doesn't, and I've said this about a few books recently, like John Daniel's latest uh, that's coming out in January. Uh, the uh, the devil, I called anyway, but it doesn't have a recognize. It doesn't have a recognizable shape. It, it, it's not non-linear, but it just doesn't. It doesn't go in a in a, in a direction that feels mm. conventional, and it and it's constantly buffeting you around. And and I love books, I, uh, and 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 it. And Nina Allen does it so well. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think what you just said there about how how finely you know how how it, mature it is as a piece of work. I, look, I, I haven't read everything she's written, but I've nearly read everything she's written. And you just feel that this one, yeah, it's taken everything she's learnt, and here it is. It's 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 a. It, I don't want to say the word masterpiece because it's a cliche, but it's damn good. Yeah, and that, that that the moment I'm talking about is just one of those things. It's one of those moments of kind of kind of narrative yeah, exaltation yeah. where you kind of want to throw the book in the air because it's kind of like, oh my god. You know, yeah. like, but also, how did you do that? How, how, how did, did you get me to that point? Yeah, you know. Yeah, and it's it, like 
you suddenly realize that you're in an Escher painting. You know, it's yeah. like, it's, it's just, it's, it's, yeah, it's, I thought it was really remarkable. Okay. Yeah. Gary. Well, you're not, okay, you're, 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 I, this is honestly what I was going to do anyway, and, and it's kind of confused matters because I, I was saying I don't have enough science fiction, so I thought I'd better find something I liked with science fiction. <laughs> and I had Nina Allen's The Art of Space Travel as my next selection, her collection. It's, it's probably her major retrospective collection of stories so far. It's not, and, 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 and like all of her stories, some of them are science fiction, some of them are exactly what Ian and James have just described of being unbalanced, keeping you unbalanced in all sorts of ways. But she knows her way around science fiction as well. I mean, she's, she's, she's been around the field. She's a, uh, an excellent critic of the field herself. I mean, her, her own website is full of just wonderful things. But this is um, a, a collection of uh, many of her stories. It's not a thematic collection like her Ruby stories, which are all connected around movie making. One of the stories was in, uh, Jonathan was in your Drowned Worlds, and it was from your Drowned Worlds mm. anthology. Um, and there's an original story, which is just the sort of thing that uh, is irresistible. It's, uh, it's a story about a, an unmade Tarkovsky version of the film Aelita, uh, which was a genuine, <laughs> genuine classic um, uh, silent uh, Soviet era science fiction film. And presumably Andrei Tarkovsky remade it, but it's full. It's, it, the story itself is a wonderful piece of film theory and criticism in itself. Um, and that's the only, that's only the original story in it. The art of space travel itself. The title story is uh, fairly well known. I think it was a Hugo nominee. I think it was a Nebula nominee. Um, and it's uh, again, it's as, as, as you say, uh, you're, you're walking a kind of bridge that turns out not to lead to where you thought it was going to go. Um, and this happens again and again in her fiction. So she, I, I, I agree with both Ian and James. She's one of the most fascinating writers I know. Favorite books of the years are funny things because sometimes they say more about you and what you like to read than they say about the book itself. That's always a thing. Uh, sometimes you come across a book, it's great, but it resonates even more for you. My favorite book of the year was, is, remains, Arcadia Martin's A Desolation Called Space Space. It's the follow-up to her Hugo Award-winning A Memory Called Empire. It's this sprawling, intense, wonderful, uh, heavily C.J. Cherry-influenced sprawling tale of empire focused down on two characters who are revealing their alternate lives, their alternate worlds, while also exploring a relationship that becomes the core of the book. Um, it's just a marvelous, marvelous book and a marvelous piece of writing. I don't know how well it would stand if you were to read it by itself without reading memory first, but a genuinely terrific book. And I feel like I've missed the boat on, on Arcady's work. So so you're telling saying get on. Oh to yeah, it. yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I agree. Uh, I I had I don't know why. When I first heard about Memory Called a Memory Called Empire, I was like, I don't know if that's gonna be any good. And then it won the the Hugo. And believe it or not, that makes me even more doubtful that it's any good. So I'm sitting there kind of going, Yeah, I don't know, fair enough. And then I thought, you know what, I'm I'm just gonna read it to, to see. I didn't even particularly like the cover to be I'm kinda of going, I, I, ah, we'll see. And I was absolutely entranced by the book in no time at all. You know, it one thing I find interesting is that it was a book written by someone who, although they're a little younger than me, is actually influenced by a lot of things that influenced me, right? I mean, yeah, I read Heinlein when I was a kid, but the influence of Cherry and writers like Cherry on writers like Martin, like Anne Leckie and whoever else are profoundly influenced is there. And so you get that sense that comes in. It's all about, yeah, it's, yes, it's science fiction, but it's about the social sciences, about the practicality of structure of empire and society and how it works and how it breaks down, whilst being really uh, character-focused. And so... Just, just a great book, and I'm really looking forward to. It. I have, I mean, we're talking about our Kindles. I know you weren't Gary, but some of us were. And on the, the Kindle, I have her next thing, which is Rose House, which is this novella for, that's coming from Subterranean next year. And she's just terrific. And it's a great book. Highly recommend. All right, I've just bought the first one. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I start. Uh, go ahead, Alex. What's Alex? I might be wrong, but I isn't. Uh, I feel like she has a doctorate. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that. The pre I have a master's series about the sense that you have of sort of a deep understanding of like how societies work and interact with each other at like the fringes, messy empire. I think very yeah. And it's interesting when you read it against books like uh, you know she who came uh, who, who became the son, this sort of thing, which are dealing with these these issues, which are obviously 
of great interest and, and, and very present in the field right now about colonialism, colonialism, empire, all this sort of thing. Uh, and you have all this against what's a great story with great character. Um, you know, be fascinating to see what she comes to next. Anyway, Alex. All right. The last one that I'm ready to talk about is uh, Nevo's The Chosen in Full, um, which I, I don't want to say I was skeptical, but I'm not a huge Fitzgerald person, you know, like, my husband has that part of the bookshelf covered. I don't have to worry about it. Um, so seeing a Gatsby retelling, I was like, eh, you know, like, I don't know if that's going to be for me. But this isn't really a retelling. It's it's like a, uh, might be called like a remix or a reclamation, but it is, it is she completely eats that book and makes it completely um, her own. And it's, it's, it's sort of a... I mostly told from the perspective of the Jordan Baker character, but Jordan Baker is reinterpreted in queer and a Vietnamese, Vietnamese adoptee yeah. and immigrant. Yeah. Um, and introduces a lot of almost surreal kind of magical elements. Like magic is both a practical lived real thing in the society, but it, it has this sort of beautiful weirdness to it out of the corner of your eye. And I just thought it was lovely and the prose was lovely and it is maybe it maybe made me feel some of the feelings you're supposed to feel in Gatsby but more that I never really did um so I really appreciated it for that and I this is a little bit off topic but I also got to read her next The Siren Queen Mm. which comes out I think next year and ties loosely into this world if you're looking for it um and I like it even better it's a totally original story, but in this sort of like glamorous early Hollywood era, it's amazing. I loved it. I have to agree. Also- I have to agree for, for a different reason. It was on my list as well. Uh, and I went into it skeptical for the opposite reason you did, because I love The Great Gatsby. <laughs> the Great Gatsby is one of the formative books that I read as a kid. I, I always thought that there was a kind of magical or fantastical element about it. And one of the things that Nevo was able to do was to stay within the framework of Gatsby. Her fantasy scenes are in the interstices of scenes in the actual novel. So she's enormously respectful of what Fitzgerald was doing. At the same time, she's taking complete possession of it. And I I was expecting, I went in thinking, oh my God, this is going to be Pride and Prejudice and Zombies with, with, with the Jazz Age. And it was not. It was a book that took the original seriously and reinvented it. I was very impressed. Yeah, and it turns out the magic, the idea of magic as like focused around illusion and glamour mm-hmm. working in the Gatsby world is like such a neat fit. It works yeah. so well. And I mean, it, it's a great testament as well to the fact that when copyright expires, people can do creative things in that space and it's healthy for culture for that to happen, like, you know, at least as an aside. Ian, what about you? So... Um... This is a book that technically was published in 2020, but no one read it, I think, in 2020. <laughs> it, was all, it was read predominantly in 2021 uh, because it got nominated for uh, the International Booker uh, Prize. Um, and that is, and it's one of the few books I actually read in hard copy because that's the only way you can get it, which is The Employees, a workplace novel of the 22nd century. That's a sticky note, but it's not, it's like not actually one I put on. It's the, how the, that's the cover. Um, so it's by Olga Raven. It's translated uh, by Martin Aitken. It's, uh, she's a Danish, mostly poet, uh, but novelist as well. Wow, how to describe this book? Um, it's actually really easy to describe because it's essentially uh, a bunch of um, statements from employees. Uh, you don't know who they are. You don't know their names because it's just got each. It's just broken up into sections and not even in a linear order, but it's statement 10, statement 25, statement 40. And as you read... And if you don't read the blurb, you are lost. You've got no idea where you are, no idea what this is about, what's going on, until about about a third of the way through you go, wait a moment, this is set on a spaceship. Okay, so that's tip number one. Hmm. Wait a moment, this is a planetary romance. These people have gone and found a planet and they've brought something from the surface of that planet which is doing something to them. Wait a moment, half of these characters aren't human, they're AI, well, they're, they're cyborgs, androids, and an organic form of android. So this all sort of comes as you're reading it, and uh, it is also a workplace novel. It's, it's very much about what it's like to interact with people, especially uh, when uh, you feel like you're, because the humans are actually a minority and, and feel under pressure uh, from the, um, the android slash cyborg robot type characters. But it's written unlike anything you've ever read uh, because it's because each of the statements is self-contained. They're little vignettes. 
Um, they're not, they, it isn't the same, it, it's nearly impossible to tell, but you don't get the feeling it's the same person or people. It's, it's, it is, because I think there's about 6,000 people on this ship. So it is all um, different people. And yet somehow she's able to bring, a, it, there is a plot. You do get to a point where you go, oh, I see, this is where it's going, this is where it's headed. And it, yeah, it has a climax as well, but in a way that's just unlike anything I've, uh, I've ever read. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's just wonderful. So, um, it is technically a 2020 book, but I, I wish I'd reviewed it for Locus. Actually, I feel bad that I didn't. So, cause I only got it cause I only got it very late and it was too late. So, uh, yeah. well, I'm, I'm very, I'm yeah. very glad to hear about it because part of that description made me think this could be, this kind of a conception could be really awful. Uh, maybe it's because I tried to watch this movie called Passengers with, Jennifer Lawrence or something. There are a couple. There are a couple of Generation Starship movies that are just literally unwatchable. Uh, but yeah. it sounds to me like this may have made something interesting. This. This is. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I, I read around it because uh, I, I was curious to know what inspired her, and she was inspired directly by Le Guin. That's her. But that's her one uh, science fiction uh, lodestone. It's Le Guin. And you yep. do feel that when yeah. you read it, but it's it's unlike, but it's it's unique. It's unlike anything you've read. It's from, and I do want to do a shout out. I know we haven't really spoken about publishers, but small presses are amazing, and if without them, there'd be nothing. And so it's 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 Lolly Editions, and it is still available. It's no ebook, but I highly highly huh. recommend it. Highly, highly. Well, we've temporarily lost James, and hopefully we'll be able to res- restore him before uh, the podcast ends. But given that we we would have spoken to him, next we might. Go to you, Gary. What's next on your list? Uh, next on my list is one I'm curious about. It's not. It's it's a fantasy in that there is a ghost on it, and it's one of those mainstreamy novels where you have to actually pay attention that the ghost has information that nobody else has, so you know it's a ghost and not merely a fantasy. But I'm also curious to see what uh, what 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 Australians might make of this novel because uh, the novel I'm talking about is E. Lily Hughes on Fragile Waves which is the novel about Afghan refugees. And it's a disturbing novel. It's a novel which I admired when it came out. And then when the actual Afghan collapse occurred, it flooded back on me. It's a group of Afghan refugees trying to make their way eventually to Australia. Um, and it's written by an American writer who spent a lot of time. I've you know chatted with her about it. She spent a fair amount of time in Afghanistan. She went to all these various locations. Um, it's a harrowing refugee novel on its own, which is probably uh, justifiable here only on the basis of that one ghost. Uh, it was published by Erwan, as one of their a new, a new publisher, one of their first titles. Uh, and I think it's one of these things that fall, falls between the cracks. I think there may not have been enough fantastic content in it to generate a lot of attention from, from the readership of, of our corner of the world. And maybe it wasn't, um, maybe it was too fantastical for, for mainstream reviewers. I don't know um, how it's been doing, but I think it's a novel that uh, certainly deserves uh, more attention than it's gotten. But Gary, I own it. I have not read it. Ah. Uh. Same, same. Amal El Mutar raved. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a very harrowing novel, um, and I hope that uh, people pay attention. I do want to say that, uh, just as a parenthesis, I've not, deliberately mentioned one of my favorite books of the year, which was Jeez. a Spindle Splintered, because we can't do that. But it <laughs> was really leave. terrific. I'll leave if you keep that up. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I've got to say, one of the hardest things in doing, we're doing Locus Recommend Reading at the same time, is you're not allowed to support or vote for the things that you worked on during the year. Um, and that's kind of a, a barrier with a couple of books, uh, which will remain nameless, but you, know, it's sort hmm. of, you can imagine what they might. Since Alex got to the end of her list and since uh young james has unfortunately fallen offline at the moment i might wind up wind up with one more book and then sort of we'll call it a thing and then we'll see what the other book i was going to mention was joe abercrombie's the wisdom of crowds Mm. i was late coming to joe abercrombie even though i had all of his books sent to me at various times they looked like pretty run-of-the-mill sort of sword and sorcery kind of books but 
I started to read his YA series that he did a few years ago, and they were interesting. But this current series that he's been doing, a trilogy of books that winds up with this one, which, uh, this is the Age of Madness trilogy where he brings the Industrial Revolution to his uh, fantasy world. Mm-hmm. And it's dark. And as you can imagine with the, with the Industrial Revolution, it's dark, it's brutal, it's got political intrigue. So there's all of that kind of thing. There's uprisings, there's violence. Because he's Lord Grimdark, it's a little bit graphic. It's also funny, <laughs> has great character, all that mm-hmm. sort of thing. It's great stuff. Well, you're back. So I was just going to say, we've done, since since we're going to transition, well, we're going to wind up with this anyway. I would strongly recommend the trilogy, um, the whole Age of Madness Mad, Mad trilogy, A Little Hatred, A Trouble of Peace, and Wisdom of Crowds are great. The new book winds it up. It's also an interesting thing from an, a writer's point of view, I would imagine, because this is the first time in writing a series where he took the time to write the entire thing before it was published. So he'd finished mm. book three before book one came out. So then he could sit there and make sure the whole thing worked, not have it kind of move under his hands a bit, as it were. So the whole thing is crafted and put together. Great stuff. And I, I honestly think that... Jonathan, how do you do that and still have a career? Like, that's a lot of words to write and not 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 be pub... I mean, yeah. If one were to impolitically guess, one would assume one had made enough money to be able to take the time off. <laughs> that, that would be one's guess. <laughs> but one's only guessing. I promise I'm not trolling with that question. I'm just curious. But okay, yeah, that's... that's yeah, I should have thought okay, I, 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 I have a quick confession to make because I... I I also am, 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 am very fond of, of Joe Abercrombie's. And, and, and there's this, the idea that history actually moves forward from a fantasy world is a very important idea. But they're very long, and I have this sort of inordinate sense of gratitude toward one of my favorite Apologies for that technical error caused by the joys of the internet. We now resume our conversation, Moral. I am confident you read other books you enjoyed during the year. I did. They do start to get either off-topic genre-wise or... Yeah. Not published this year. Yeah. How, how about this? How about, can we do a quick repper charge where I could yeah. just, just rather rather than go into great detail, just mention yeah. a couple of other yeah, great books? Yeah, because I have a couple too. Okay. okay, all right. So I would mention uh, Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death. That is the title. It's M R S Death, M I S E S Death by Selena Godden. Uh, magnificent book. I would also mention uh, Dead Souls by Sam Riviere, uh, Cracker. I'd wrench. I mean, I'm just going to say crack at all of these. Just assume. Uh, the Angels of L19 by Jonathan Walker. And I can't miss out, even though we would have missed out if, I, if we'd stopped then. Uh, Angela Slatter's uh, the, All the Murmuring Bones, which is, oh, is a wonderful shoot. book. That would, should totally have been on my list. I completely spaced on that book. I loved that book. Yeah, it is. It is. It is great. And we, I, Angela, I keep bringing this up, but we, do, I do a, another podcast, a competitor to this particular podcast, writer and the critic. Uh, you know, there's constant fights between the two podcasts. And anyway, uh, one of the books we did, we spoke about, was all the Murmuring Bones, and I did the rookie error of not having actually finished it for the actual discussion. Part of the problem of 2021 being a cluster fudge of a year. So. Um, Yes, uh, but I did finish it eventually, and it is amazing. So all the murmuring bones. So there's some repercharge books that you can you can add. This is going to be one of those ones that takes editing to fix. But uh, the conversation's been great. I'm really grateful for it. But the conversation is going to take some editing well, to fix. I, I think we should probably wrap up then before the then. whole the whole internet just implodes. Do you have okay, Ian? Do you have a couple of things that you just want to? mentioned because i've got i've got a couple of things to mention just because they were fun you did did already i did i did that okay well mine okay two things that i thought were just a lot of fun uh were and again maybe it's because i'm uh, appreciative of satirical or comic fiction one was saad hussein's cyber mage which could on one level be a ya novel about this brilliant teenager in bangladesh who's uh who's who's known as cyber mage, but it's got characters in it like an unemployed airport artificial intelligence because airports are, are obsolete and the artificial intelligence has to take a job running a high school, which is really frustrated. And so it's furiously and bitter about its life, uh, you know, running. And and it's, it's just wonderful. And like all of Hossein's uh, stories of which there are not enough. And the other one, which is similar, but not similar was Jolly Clark's, uh, a master of gin, his, sort of alternate history Cairo in 1912 novel uh, that, again, is uh, a real interesting and and in some ways very funny critique of colonialism and critique of 
of English colonialist uh, uh, mythology uh, all by itself. There's a there's a group in it called the Order of Order of the but it's it's not called the Order of the Golden Dawn. That was the real historical group that had Oscar Wilde and people in it. But there is a group uh, similar to that, clearly based on it, that just gets massacred in all kinds of wonderfully bloody ways. So that I thought yeah. was just enormous fun. It was so fun. It was like a pulpy detective novel. It was also a detective novel. Yeah, Clark's, like pretty absurd level of historical knowledge right because he studies yeah. black international black history as a doctorate of it and uh all the like tiny twists on history <laughs> like that book could be footnoted yeah, i wish it, it was a footnoted version so i could see all the references it's it's a delight yeah. well it probably is, is is appropriate that our conversation about books in 2021 have been mucked around by technology and problems and everything else so rather than drag it out further, I'd like to thank all of you for making time to talk to us today. Alex, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Ian, thank you as well. It's been a pleasure. And James, I don't know if you can hear me or not, but thank you so much for making time as well. Uh, we will no doubt talk again, but until now, I hope you, until the time comes, I hope you have great holiday seasons and that we'll see you all next year. Bye. Goodbye. See you.